Hi there, I'm Michelle Bunch, and this is Enthusiasm Diaries. Enthusiasm is contagious, and in this podcast, we get to share in the enthusiasm of others and perhaps spark some of our own curiosity along the way. Thanks so much for listening. In this podcast, I interview Samira Rajabi. Samira holds a PhD and she's the Director of Technology Influence Practice and an Instructor of Media Studies at the University of Colorado. She specializes in digital and social media, trauma, international relations, and disability studies. In our conversation, we touch on much of her professional work, but also how that's been influenced by her own personal life and history. An important note for context. This podcast was recorded at the end of April 2020, just as the Colorado stay-at-home orders were being lifted in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so I am here with Samira Rajabi. Samira, thank you so much for being willing to do this. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I saw I was going through some of the TEDx folder talks and had happened to see Samira and I, I kind of did a double take because while I didn't know Samira super, super well, her and I were on the same floor um, during freshman year of college. And so she was kind enough to let me um, interview her and share a little bit about some of her recent work. So again, thanks for, for being here. And um, Samira has been doing quite a bit of things she'll kind of share about, but Currently, she's an instructor of media studies at the at um, CU, and I'm I'm wondering, Samir, if you can just kind of tell us like how you got into that, and 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 I know it might go a ways back, but how did you get interested in that? So sometimes I wonder that myself because um, I feel like I got here by accident, but. Um, I was getting my master's in international and intercultural communication at the University of Denver, and I traveled to East Africa as part of this East Africa immersion, and I was interested in helping women. And even before that, I was just really interested in helping people. And so I just, I I went on this project and I saw all these really great, but small nonprofits doing really amazing work, but kind of hitting a wall. And I just thought, we need to know more and do our research a bit more before we jump into trying to help people or solve problems with them. Because I saw a lot of people trying to solve problems for people rather than alongside them. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought I had to know more. So I didn't know really anything about getting a PhD or what it was to be an academic or anything. I just knew, okay, where do I go when I need to know more things? Oh, I go to school. So right, I went exactly. back to school. Yeah. It was like a little bit bananas. I was like, <laughs> people are like, Oh, did you always want to be an academic? And I didn't understand the question at all. I probably looked like such an <laughs> idiot that first year. I was like, aren't we all being in an, what is an academic? I, I was like, why are they using like a, like term of learning to describe a person. I was right. very like, I'm, not under, I'm not following. Yeah. So I ended up um, starting my PhD thinking I would pursue some of the same sort of practical NGO based work around women and violence um, and how to support women who have been through violence. Um, but I got diagnosed with a brain tumor in, in the second year of my PhD. And I realized that, um, 
both as somebody who is experiencing a trauma really, um, really in real time and in a big Mm -hmm. way that maybe some of the things I'd learned were not as effective as we might think that they might be as people with a lot of privilege who want to go help people who maybe have less privilege. And so it caused me to read different materials and push myself a little bit differently and really try to know more about what it is to be human and how it is to support people human to human rather than going around the world um, with a lot of privilege, trying to pretend we can fix things for other people. Right. How how did, what was that experience like for you personally that kind of led to that? I was, so I got diagnosed with a brain tumor. It was a benign brain tumor, but it was, uh, I like to say resting gently on my brainstem, which I learned from some very directed Google searches is important. Um, it's a big deal, that brainstem. Yeah. yeah. The doctor was like, well, it is on your brainstem. And at that moment I was like, okay, that's meaningless to me. I do social science. I don't know what you want. Right. Um, and then I, t- I was like, wait, what does the brainstem do? And when he explained it to me, I was like, I'm invested in keeping that intact. <laughs> yeah. I think I realized when I got sick that all of the things that a lot of us are socially kind of trained to say and do that feel really generous and well-meaning are maybe not very effective things to say to people who are suffering, that they feel kind of um, patronizing or hurtful or just unproductive. And I think we grow up learning that these might be appropriate responses because they are coming from a good place, but that doesn't actually matter to what they do for people as they're going through stuff. And I kept finding that people would say things to me that I know they thought were helpful. Like you're going to fight through this and you're such a warrior and you're so strong. And I just kept thinking to myself, I'm so tired and I just want a little bit of permission to mm-hmm. have that be okay. And, and like, maybe I don't feel so strong all the time. Yeah. And maybe that's fine. Right. Like, right. why do I have to fight? Cause I kept thinking, okay, yeah, I have this tumor, but I grew this thing in my body. So who exactly am I fighting and what exactly am I supposed to be mobilizing against? And, you know, the, the connotation of fight as a metaphor for illness or warrior or battle indicates anger and aggression and fear. And it was like, what, what part of myself am I supposed to be directing those feelings at? And it just made me realize that when we do a lot of these things around supporting people and, and helping people solve problems, we end up trying to tell them what they need rather than really hearing what they need. Um, which I knew on like a, a theoretical level, but to feel it constantly in my own body made me want to conduct my research in a different way and made me want to be a different kind of person. And then when I started teaching in grad school and later, you know, went on to become basically a full-time teacher, I realized that this space of giving permission to people to be human needs to exist in the classroom as well. And it's not something we do in places that are really performance driven, like schools. Right. Well, it's kind of like the words that were coming up in my mind as you were talking is that difference between like intention and impact. Like 
well-intending people saying things, but the impact can feel hurtful or feel, you know, not good, (laughs) whatever that looks like. Um, I, I wonder if you could just say a little bit more like what that period of time was like for you. I mean, I can only imagine here you are trying to get your your PhD and complete school. And then this, this is what you're contending with. Like, what was that like? What does that continue to be like? It's definitely, I, I mean, I actually, it's funny you said that phrasing because I tell my students all the time and I tell the people in my life that intention has no bearing on outcome. Um, my least favorite phrase is I didn't mean to, because it doesn't actually matter if you meant to hurt somebody or if you meant to help somebody. Ultimately, we all need to be accountable for the things we say and do. And so for me, it first became like an individual test of like, oh my God, I have to tell everybody around me how to behave. And then I realized that it's really not about you and me and how we approach each other. It's about how different social structures like the media, like you know our governments, like all these stories we tell ourselves and each other about illness and other things have trained us to behave. And we have to break it down at a more cultural level because it's not my fault or your fault that I think the right response to someone who's sick is you're a fighter. It's, it's a larger social responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think sometimes this need to like say things just to make the desperate need people have when, when people around them are sick to want to make it all better and want to make it like almost like wipe away all the hard feelings and really what that would feel like if instead someone could just like be with you and maybe just ask you how you're feeling. You know what I mean? Like the job description isn't like you have to make it better to be a friend and a support. It's like just being there. Yeah. And you know, like we're so as humans and especially for people in the U S so uncomfortable with uncertainty. And like, Mm -hmm. sometimes the answer is, I don't know. Right. You know, how do I make you feel better? I don't know. My mom was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer three years ago, almost three years ago. And, you know, knock on wood, she's stable. She's doing okay. But Ultimately, there was nothing I could say to her that was going to make her feel better. I could share with her my experience. I could be there with her. I could kind of sit there waiting in the wings for her to ask me for something. I was always there, but I could never, I couldn't fix what she had. I can't solve that problem for her. So I just had to be there. And I think going through it myself, especially in a space like grad school where you're working mostly with really esteemed experts in their field who are used to having the right answers. It made right. it very clear to me how uncomfortable people are with just not knowing. Right. Yeah. Just sitting in the waiting and the unknown. Yeah. Um, and like unknown can be a really negative thing because we don't know what's going to happen. And it could, we can spiral out in all the possibilities of all the scary things that could happen, but also there's all sorts of other possibilities, right? Of ingenuity, of, uh, gratitude, of taking advantage of whatever we have in mm-hmm. terms of time, if it's about illness. And I think we're seeing both sides of that right now. I don't know if you've heard, there's a small pandemic taking yeah. place. <laughs> only affecting everyone in the world. Yeah. And so, you know, we're watching people navigate this, like this balance between 
letting the uncertainty take them to really dark places, but also letting the uncertainty take them to really ingenious places and creative places and places of community and support and love and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like how we can, how we, the power that we do have the power to kind of see and decide how we want to use this time, even if we don't have control in, in the bigger picture and, and what's going on and, and the impact of all that. But first we have to admit that we have no control that right. we can't as individuals fix it, right? We can be mindful, we can be careful, we can be smart, but we can't just solve it for ourselves, right? These things are going to be what they're going to be. Trauma is uneven and unsteady. And the sooner people get comfortable with that uncertainty and are willing to accept that, the sooner we can move through it. Mm-hmm. You said you you were diagnosed with your brain tumor your second year of your PhD. What what did that look like? Like how long of a period of time were you in getting active kind of treatment and recovery? Um, I guess I just want to know a little bit more what that what that time period looked like and even what helped you during that time. Yeah, so I was diagnosed. I started. I was basically walking to class my first day of my second year, which was 2012. And I just fell down. And at first I thought, okay, this is what I get for trying to walk. Like I should have (laughs) took my car. But um, then I realized that I I got up and I quickly fell again. And it almost felt in my body as though somebody was shoving me. And I was like, something is not right. And Um, everybody around me was like, you're probably dehydrated. So I drank a lot of water in the next 48 hours until I could get um, in to see a doctor. And they're like, you can probably stop drinking water as though your life depends on it and go back (laughs) to the normal amount. Um, But I was basically diagnosed. um, It took from August to October to get an MRI approved through my insurance, which is a whole nother conversation. But in October, I was diagnosed. I spent the entire month of October um, looking for doctors that I trusted. I went to nine local doctors. Um, and so the, the type of tumor I have, it's called an acoustic neuroma. And generally, they happen in older populations. They're generally not that big. You can generally sort of wait them out in a lot of situations. But they've been cropping up more and more in younger populations and they tend to be bigger if you get them younger for whatever reason. Um, and so mine was big enough that it was causing problems with my hearing and it was on my, um, facial nerve. So it was potentially going to cause problems with being able to blink and eat and swallow and all these other things. And, um, it was also, you know, the small thing of the brainstem. So I knew I had to treat it, but there was disagreement among the doctors I was seeing of whether I should get, uh, radiation or if I should get brain surgery. And so I spent the majority of the fall trying to find somebody who would give me an answer that felt intuitively right to me. And a lot of doctors were saying, well, we should radiate it, see if it shrinks and then do surgery. But then they were also letting me know that at my age, the level of radiation I would need could potentially risk my life for other reasons or, you know, that amount of radiation stuck in your body and all these other things. And it was just like, I, I'm a data driven person. And I was like, show me the data. And there's not data because 
either the technology didn't exist to diagnose people at my age before for them to have done longitudinal studies, or it's just not, it's just an under-researched type of tumor. For whatever reason, there were no studies to show what happens to people who get radiated for this reason at this age when they're older. And I was like, I'm not going to go through this just to die of something else caused by this. Yeah. And so radiation didn't feel right because they were like, we'll see if it shrinks. And if it doesn't, we'll still cut your head open. But by the way, the radiation is going to make the surgery a lot more complicated. And I was like, well, that's a bad answer. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't like want that. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they kept being like, look, you can have surgery or radiation or with the amount of impact this has had on your brainstem because my brainstem was starting to move. Um, we, we do think that this is life-threatening, this tumor that's not normally life-threatening. We do think that it is. And so I'd had an MRI when I was 16 and the tumor was sort of missed because it was really small. And then I got an MRI when I was 26 and they were like, Oh, there, there it is. It's huge. But because I'd had these MRIs 10 years apart, we could kind of gauge how much it might be growing per year. Mm-hmm. So they were like, if if it's growing an even amount each year, you probably have two years before this does serious damage to your brainstem and potentially kills you. Um, so oh I was like, gosh. okay, I gotta do something. So finally, I found um, a specialist in Arizona who does just more of these surgeries than anybody else. And I flew to Arizona over my holiday break to get brain surgery with him. His name was Robert Spetzler. He's since retired, but he works out of a place called Barrow Neurosurgical in Arizona. And um, he, he was confident and he was nice and he had done a lot of these surgeries and he'd had more good outcomes than doctors who just do less of them because they're not as common. Mm-hmm. So I went to Arizona for Christmas break and I was determined, I think because of sort of this like fighter mentality of don't let the tumor beat you, you beat the tumor and be stronger than the tumor. They told me, okay, you're going to go get brain surgery. You need six weeks to recover. You can go back to your semester a couple weeks late. And I was like, Psh, I'm tough. Other people need six weeks. I'll take three. Yeah, just cut it in half, the recovery time. Yeah, it's fine. Um, And I went back to school when school started. So I got my surgery December 20th, and I was back in school by uh, January 18th when the semester started, Um, which was tough, I would say. And then when the the day the six weeks hit, I was like, I I know what I'll do because I have to not only – be really strong and tough. I have to be like superhuman because those were all the stories that I'd been peddled as in those first few months of being sick, like tap into your inner strength. And this is going to like give you some window into your inner strength. So I was like, I have to be stronger than I was before. And I was like a fitness instructor before on the side, I taught like yoga sculpt and stuff like that. So I was like, all right, I gotta be, I gotta be a badass. So I joined a CrossFit gym um, at six weeks and one day of being like out of brain surgery. And, um, yeah, it was like, it was an idea. It was certainly an idea. Um, (laughs) and I got a spinal fluid leak while I was at the CrossFit gym working out, which just means the seal around your brain, um, like your, the dura doesn't seal correctly around your brain and, or it's something with the anatomy of your bones. There's all sorts of reasons it can happen, but the fluid around my brain started pouring out my nose while I was at a CrossFit gym. 
my and gosh. so that was inconvenient, I would say. So yeah. basically between, and so I had more surgery um, in the summer to fix that. They were just, it was a small leak. So I wasn't in imminent danger, but it heightens your risk of meningitis and other infection. And um, so I had to get surgery again in uh, July. And then, but I was so stubborn about staying in school and not showing any weakness that I would not schedule my surgeries at first around when they were medically necessary. I would schedule them around my semester. Oh, like your class breaks. Yeah. Which I, if I could give advice to anybody who is a student who has a major life event, um, don't do that. Yeah. Maybe talk to your professors. Yeah. And like also this recognition that like our value is not in the work that we do. It's in the person that we are. And Mm -hmm. it took me years to learn that. And it took, so I ended up, the tumor ended up growing. They'd only taken half of it out. And long story short, I got another very severe spinal fluid leak right after the third surgery, which was to take out the tumor again and was in the ICU for several weeks and basically spent the next um, several years in and out of the hospital trying to manage the spinal fluid leak. I was given a, a shunt that is like basically like a tube that drains your spinal fluid into your stomach to try to give your body a chance to heal and to reroute it. Uh, my body couldn't sustain it. So I just had brain surgery after brain surgery after brain surgery um, trying to fix this spinal fluid leak. And I ended up having 10 craniotomies in total. Um, between 2012 and 2016. Um, and 2017 was the first year of no brain surgery, as I call it. So um, that's how I measure my life now. Like I, I get like alerts on Facebook or whatever of memories of the brain surgeries. I'm like, wow, it's been almost three years that I haven't had to get my head cut open. And there was a period where it was happening like every other month. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, what was like, I mean, so a period, so like three and a half years of, or four years of just, like you said, a a surgery every few months, what, like, how did that affect change you as a person? How did that like shift some of the ways that maybe you used to look at things like this? I mean, here you are in the CrossFit gym six weeks and one day after your first one, how did, how did your responses to recovery and sort of how you were viewing yourself through this sort of shift over those years? I, I really struggled. So I was really lucky in one sense, I found this really cool online community, which actually kind of motivated my research into how I'd already seen with women in East Africa, how they were using things like mobile phones to find access to community that they could use on their own terms to find safety and community. So I knew people use technology to cope and to heal. But I found when I was diagnosed, um, a community on Twitter that tweets under the hashtag BTSM and it's brain tumor social media. And I met other people who had gone through a variety of different brain tumors from brain cancers to benign tumors to really rare kind of um, tumors I'd never heard of that offered me a a way to think through what was happening to me. And at the same time, I was reading a lot of just for school and what I was interested, I was reading a lot about trauma and a lot about disability and disability rights activists and how disability activists try to encourage people not to see 
illness or disability as something lacking, but as simply something that exists on this continuum of difference that we all have. And Mm -hmm. so all of that reading, I think, helped me try to learn how to accept myself. But I'm also a social creature, just like the rest of us. I was also sort of indoctrinated by this world that teaches us how to behave. And I really struggled to be okay with the fact that I couldn't run anymore and I couldn't teach yoga sculpt anymore. And I didn't, my body didn't look the way it did before the surgeries. I was, you know, really proud of this like strong body. Um, Mm -hmm. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of trauma therapy. Um, And there was a moment that I think was actually pretty unhealthy where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm still going to be a student. I really never let my studies slip. My PhD took me two extra years, but I, I never withdrew from the program or took a time out. I just pushed myself to maintain this connection to my program, which I think served me in a lot of ways, but denied me this ability to grieve some of the things in my body that were happening. Mm. Um, yeah. And then the other thing I did that I think was unhealthy was I was like, okay, you're going to be a professional patient. And that's what you're going to be really good at. And I was really good at it. But to the point that when the doctor was like, all right, I don't know that I fixed your spinal fluid leak, which is sort of where I am now. The last test for the spinal fluid leak came back as suspicious for a spinal fluid leak. And the neurosurgeon was kind of like, I don't know what else I could kind of stick in your brain to plug this leak. Like, I don't know what else to do. To do, yeah. Yeah. So he was like, I don't know that you really are leaking or if we messed up. your wiring or how fluid flows in your head. But I don't know that cutting your head open again is, is going to necessarily help anything. And so I just sort of go through the world in this like precarious, like, am I sick? Am I not sick? Am I leaking? Do I have allergies? I don't know. And I've had to get comfortable with that. But when he was sort of like, you're going to be okay, at least for the foreseeable future, go back to work full time, Mm -hmm. just go back to normal life. That's what he said. Go back to normal life. I was like, I don't know how to do that at all. I'm really good at being in the hospital. I'm really good at knowing the intervals at which the nurses will push me to walk again and eat again and go to the bathroom again. But I do not know how to go back to work in this world where people have not been through this horrifying trauma and just try to be normal. Yeah. And like, what is normal? (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's so probably just trying to wrap your head around that. What is your normal, you know? Yeah. And I'm like one of those people that thinks like normal is kind of a lie. We all tell ourselves anyway. So when people are like, you just have to find your new normal. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I actually want to be in this space of discomfort and knowing how fragile all of this is not in like fight or flight all the time, but Mm -hmm. in the sense of like, I want to be able to know when something's not right and name that and let that be okay. I think sometimes when the schema we use to make sense of our world, the things that we use to give us routine break, it also helps us see where those meaning making schema were inadequate. And Mm. if we don't have a world that's capacious enough for sick bodies to fit into, then our world is simply not capacious enough and we need to do better. And that's what disability rights advocates say all the time, right? Like we're not different, 
right? We all exist on this continuum of disability and ability. And if we all live long enough, we're all going to be disabled in some way, right? Like Mm -hmm. we can't see the world as normal and not normal. We have to see the world as people who are complicated and different and messy and wonderful. It sounds like you're dealing with the unknowns about what's happening with the fluid leak recently. And how how would you describe what's going on, how how you experience that now and how you're kind of living with it? I think I'm a lot more accepting of myself. Um, I definitely have these internal battles where um, whether it's the remnants of my tumor or the fact that I'm completely deaf on my right side and I have only one balanced nerve, I get tired really easily. And so the biggest thing I battle with with myself is giving myself permission to to feel that and accept that it's okay that I'm tired and it's not a failing. Um, Because I think, again, we're sort of um, brought about in this world where our productivity um, and our job and our income and how hard we work becomes how we measure our intrinsic value. So I've, I have to do work every day to remind myself that that's not what makes me a valuable person, that Mm -hmm. I am valuable because of who I am and how I love and how I care. And because I am a human. Um, so I deal with a lot of feelings around that, but I'm a lot more accepting of myself. And I think that's also the thing I bring to students and to, um, graduate students who are also teachers, Um, now that I work with at the university is it's okay. It's okay to be tired. It's okay to be anxious. It's okay to be scared. We don't want to amplify or indulge those feelings, but we want to honor them and we want to sit with them and we want to let ourselves know that it's okay that we have them, um, and not erase how we're feeling in favor of kind of mindless productivity. So, I tried to balance that with the fact that I do have a demanding job um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I do have chronic pain and all these other things, but it's definitely, it takes work to stay in a healthy mindset, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I would imagine that, you know, your students, it's like really helpful to have you be someone that can sort of foster some of that. Is there feedback or, um, that you've gotten from students just on some of your discussion about just acknowledging those tougher feelings or anything you've witnessed in teaching kids with that, um, with that in the background? I think they appreciate it. One of the things I've noticed every year, my students seem a little bit more anxious about performing and doing a really good job and, and, you know, an A at all costs. And I understand that. I think the biggest thing I can do as an educator, as a teacher, as someone who cares about them is to be flexible with them. I have students come to me and say, I had a panic attack and I didn't finish this assignment. And a lot of times faculty will be like, no, tough cookies, kiddo, like, and just shut them down. But it's like, if all I need to do to help shepherd you through this difficult time is to give you one more day to do this assignment that in the scheme of your life is actually going to be pretty arbitrary, then why mm-hmm. not? Right? right. Why not give you flexibility and kindness and grace? And I think I've realized that all of these things that we hold up as so important, these structures and these frameworks and these rules that if we just operated in a more human and compassionate way, 
it would serve us all better anyway. And I think actually the current sort of, I don't want to say collapse of society, but sort of this, this halting of everything on a moment's notice and telling everyone to stay home lets us know that a lot of the things we've let become so important to us in terms of regulating our time and our space don't Mm -hmm. actually offer us what we thought that they did or what we tell ourselves that they did. I mean, I think people are reluctant to call this a trauma either because they don't want to claim that from people who have gone through cancer or assault or, you know, a whole host of traumas, right? But this is a massive collective trauma. I mean, the baseline of the definition of trauma that I use comes from a scholar named um, Ronnie Janoff-Bullman, and she says that at its baseline, a traumatic event is the kind of event that breaks down kind of the system of meaning making or the meaning making schema that we have, right? This idea that I will wake up in the morning, I will go to work, I will have a routine, I will send my kids to school, I'll pick them up at the end of the day, and we will all live to do it again the next day. Like that's the most basic level of it. But all of these social structures build up to become a meaning making schema. And a majority of them broke down all at once for all of us. So whether your trauma is watching someone you love, God forbid, you know, or care for deal with COVID-19 or going through it yourself, or just this disruption in the fabric of your life, everybody is feeling this trauma. And some populations are feeling it more than others. Women tend to be feeling it more than men. Um, African-Americans in this country, Black Americans are are feeling it tenfold with in terms of access to resources and mortality rates and all these other things. And so, but ultimately we are all going through a massive trauma. And I think one of the ways to get through trauma is first to acknowledge that it's happening. Like one of the things I keep seeing that is so frustrating and scary is this rush to return to normal, to open stores up and to be willing to sacrifice people in order for this kind of idea of normal with very little introspection or questioning of like who was left out of normal in the first place and who will definitely be left out of normal now. And it's scary. And I think we need to acknowledge like this is a traumatic event. It's a collective trauma. It's going to take time for people to heal and cope with that trauma and all the mental health components that come with that. But it's also going to be something that we need if we want to come out of this in a good way. We can't just try to reassemble what existed before because that broke and it's gone now. This, the, the most successful thing I ever did in terms of helping myself cope with just years and years of brain surgery was accepting that the person who walked into the surgical room is not the person who's walking out. Mm. It was transforming. You knew how yeah, Absolutely. you were changed from it. I mean, they, the, one of the words that gets used a lot in trauma studies is that it was a traumatic rupture, right? When something ruptures, we don't glue it back together. Right. You, you have to make something new. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, that's helpful to kind of have realistic expectations in, in how we collectively are going to move forward from this. And I, and you're right. It's not just going to be a zip right back to where we were before 
it's new, like you said. Um, I'm curious, just with your research, and I believe you're, you're, you even have a book on this, is just about meaning making through social media. And certainly we're all dependent on technology, I think, during this time more than ever before. Um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of ways that this has been a lifeline connecting people. Um, and I also think there's some ways when you're not, when you're, you don't have enough going on or you're bored or scared, you can also, I don't know what the word would be overindulge or, um, kind of mindlessly take in maybe more or, or things that are less helpful. I'm curious, just your thoughts about just how we're using social media now and, and, where you see it going from here and some ways to make sure we're using it in a way that's helpful. Yeah. So I like to say that, you know, there's so many stories of like social media is, you know, turning our brains to mush or social media is so bad. Yeah, absolutely. Social media is terrible, but it is also so extraordinary and wonderful at the same time. And um, so yeah, the, the book I have, it's, um, under contract with Rutgers. I'm turning in the final manuscript actually tomorrow is in my calendar oh, wow. to give them my last notes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, yes. thank you. But it's called all my friends live in my computer, all my friends live in my computer, trauma, tactical media, and meaning. And when we say tactical media, we're talking about these spaces where people go to be deliberate be tactical to resist narratives that are being told about them to remake their worlds after a traumatic rupture. And I look at people who have been through traumas um, from breast cancer. I look at somebody who um, in my past work, I looked at people who were killed in political protest. I look at how these communities um, come together, work through traumatic events, think through them and try to create a world that they can exist on, even if that world is only online. And I think that's what um, some of the affordances of these platforms like Twitter or Facebook or TikTok um, mm -hmm. can do. They enable us to take advantage of the types of communication that they enable. So Twitter lets us uh, reshare and recirculate things based on a shared idea through hashtags or Instagram lets us share images really quickly and effectively to a wide audience. Those affordances of the platform enable us to create certain stories and try to work through and make sense of what we're going through, both by creating media content, but also by kind of absorbing it and taking it in. And well, there's a whole host of reasons to be critical of this because it's, you know, it's consumer culture, it's built into this sort of like individualized neoliberal ideology. And it's it, a lot of it is about buying and selling. There are these pockets that we find where we're finding and fostering real connection with mm -hmm. real other people. And that matters. And that especially matters now um, in terms of recovery from trauma, coping with trauma. And I think I'm seeing it everywhere. I'm seeing people reach out to each other. I'm seeing people connect with each other. I'm seeing people offer each other hashtags on Twitter of, mm. hey, if you're immunocompromised, use hashtag high risk COVID so you can find other people who might have some resources for you wow. that can help you. You know, that's huge. And that yeah. matters. Big time. Yeah. Like, do we want to look at funny cat videos until 3 a.m.? Also, maybe. 
maybe that's productive for wherever you're at. Maybe not, but you know, all we can do is do our best. And I think the media enable us to be creative and find ways to reach out, to make meaning, to make sense of what's happening, of our fear of what's happening and to, to negotiate this uncertainty, um, in different ways. And especially when our other social frameworks are so restricted, it's a lifeline. And the thing about the way sort of meaning making works online is that it's never just happening in isolation, right? We're putting something out there in order for it to circulate. And that circulation enables that meaning to reproduce and be negotiated by other types of people and to enable it to grow. And so in some ways that can be really unproductive and it can go into these like little circles where they just keep reproducing sort of negative ideologies and and conspiracy theories and things like that. But in other ways, it helps us collectively create or make sense of this kind of traumatic event, right? And Mm -hmm. like the the theory around media goes that like if if we weren't putting it out there, we would just write it in our diary, right? But when I post something on Twitter or on Facebook or on any other social media on Reddit, I'm looking for people to see it. And whether they do or not, that act of posting it does something productive in terms of enabling me to feel like my voice matters. Mm, And there's a media scholar named Nick Coldry who says that um, knowing that your voice matters is a human good and it should be considered a human good because we all want to know that we matter in society. And now I think more than ever, people are putting their ideas out there and putting their thoughts out there in order for them to circulate with other people's thoughts. And that's going to be, I think, one of the most fertile places to look for kind of new ground to grow our whatever society looks like on the tail end of this is look at where people are making sense of this together and pushing each other and contesting each other. And even something as simple as like a you know, a meme that gets shared. And when I share it, I put a new caption on it and then you see it and you put a new caption on it. We're growing the meaning of what that can be and who can be involved in laughing at it or using it or whatever. Yeah. Perhaps widening the audience. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Are are there, um, and for you um, specifically just from this and after getting your book um, checked off the list tomorrow. Are there areas of future study or interest or things that you personally are interested in focusing on, you know, in the next couple of years here? Or I'm just curious what else you may have up your sleeve. Um, retirement. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Tired. Um, no, I was before the pandemic hit, I was looking at a lot at sort of what I'm calling symbolic trauma, which is they're not, they're not what we would consider traumas in society in terms of like, it's not a tumor or an attack or something that only happens in your physical body. It's caused by um, something political. So you and I have talked about this in the past, but something like the travel ban, that's a symbolic trauma because it tells you that the way you thought you could exist in one country or another, you can't, right? So my family's from Iran. My parents were immigrants when the travel ban happened, it was like, wait, so are Iranians not cool to become Americans? Cause I thought I was American 
And that's traumatic, right? So like I was looking at um, how those kinds of traumatic events impact the way people use the internet and how people are negotiating them and trying to resist them and protest them, but also cope with them online. Um, I was also looking at... um, in November in Iran, the internet was shut down after several protests. Um, and so a lot of people in the U.S. that um, were part of the Iranian diaspora or people who were invested in kind of political futures in Iran were using the internet to try to campaign for the internet to be turned back on in Iran. And oh, so, wow. yeah, it was really interesting, but it was really scary and really traumatic. And I was kind of wanted to find out how how does the dynamic of using social media to cope with trauma change when it's people who have no access to the place where the trauma is happening, um, but are yeah. feeling it and experiencing it through the technology? Um, and is that a good way to advocate for something like this? But um, the pandemic has kind of changed my perspective on research in the sense of, I don't want to do work that's not going to help people. I don't mm-hmm. want to produce research for research's sake. I don't want to think through things just because it's interesting to me. Um, so I want to only, I'm, I'm really doing a lot of soul searching to, to only participate and say yes to projects that I think offer people a help, a helping hand in terms of coping, in terms of Mm-hmm. Um, making sure the work is accessible to people and written in language that would be accessible, not just to people in the academy with PhDs, but to everybody. And so um, as higher ed is in crisis, as people are in crisis, I'm also sort of in this moment of productive crisis of like, how do I make sure that whatever work I do and with all this research I've done on trauma and media gets put out in the world in a way that it's helpful Um and yeah. does something good rather than just, you know, pad my ego and my CV so I could like get a better job or something. Cause that doesn't matter at the end of the day. Right. Well, I can, I can say certainly hearing your sense with your background and personal experience to, and, and what you're able to share as it relates to what we're all going through now is hugely helpful. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for your time today. And It's been so fun to get to talk with you about this and look forward to any future times to talk with you and and future work that you'll be doing. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave a review and share with a friend. And if you're enthusiastic about something and want to share it, please contact me at michelle at enthusiasmdiaries.com.